Good morning to all of you. I know there's a lot of people out on spring break this week enjoying the beautiful weather. You know, as, as a teacher, when I taught, I used to know that spring break was here because every time spring break would come around, the weather would just take a total nosedive. And it'd be rainy and snowy and sleety, and I knew it was spring break. I'd be like, ah, the one week off I get. Um, but hey, we're glad that you're here this morning. It's supposed to get better. That's the good news. It's great to have my, my folks are here this morning, and if I'm a little distracted this morning, please forgive me. My grandson, Finn, is here in the front row, so I'm distracted as it is, so, you know, if I tend to go wander off course or what, what is he talking about, just know that's the reason. It's all good. We're going to be in Romans 11 today, Palm Sunday. And it's going to play into Romans 11, and hopefully you'll be able to see that, but I think it's an important passage. So that's where we're going to be today as we continue on in Romans. Frederick the Great was king of Prussia. 250 years ago, he and his chaplain were discussing the Bible, whether or not it was true. Frederick the Great asked his chaplain, can you prove to me in one sentence that the Bible is true? After thinking about it for a while, the chaplain said, I don't need an entire sentence, I only need two words. And he said, those two words are the Jews. What a perfect response. God, if you think about it, God has miraculously preserved his people, the Jews, down through the centuries. And if you talk about a history of a people who have been put through the mill, so to speak, it's them. God had a plan for the Jews. Chapter 9, they were blessed. They had all of those things. The temple they had the law, they had the patriarchs, the promises, they had the Shekinah glory, they had the line of the coming Messiah, all those blessings that God gave them. And then in, in chapter 10, we learned that last week that they've rejected God, the Jewish, the people as a whole. And that's part of this idea of Palm Sunday. We're going to see that in the story of Palm Sunday, is when Christ came that last week, um, they rejected him, and he went to the cross. It was God's plan, though, wasn't it? This wasn't a plan B, by the way. <laughs> when Christ came that final week, that was all part of God's plan. But the Jews as a people rejected their Messiah, and they looked elsewhere. That's chapter 10. But chapter 11, Paul wants us to know that God isn't finished with his people. There's a plan that's in place, that's been in place, and is in place now and will continue to be in place for his people in the future. And so that's the story of Romans 11. It's the future of God's people, Israel. So Palm Sunday, Jesus came. It was the week of Passover. But he comes riding on a donkey. Go figure. Why? Well, because the prophets foretold that he would come riding on a donkey. Zechariah 9.9 says that he's going to come into Jerusalem that way. It was all part of his plan, humble and riding on a donkey. He came and the people rejected him. Crucify him. One moment it was, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna means save us. Save us. In their minds, save us from the Romans. <laughs> We're tired. We need a king. We need someone who's going to come in and take care of the Romans for us and set up shop the kingdom now. That was their expectations of a Messiah. 
But here comes Jesus, and yeah, his plans were to save them. That's why he was there. That's why he was coming to Jerusalem. But in a totally different sort of way, by taking their sins to the cross as their savior. Whole different way of Hosanna than they expected. And so there was the turning back and the rejection of Israel. So we pick it up in Romans 11, and Paul is thinking about that. And what's going on with these Israelites? They're my people. I'm concerned about them. I love them greatly. I'm one of them. So what's, what's going on? Let's read the first 10 verses of Romans 11. We're going to see the grace of God in this passage. I ask then, did God reject his people? Question number one. It's a rhetorical question, but Paul gives us an answer anyway. He wants us to know right off the bat, no, by no means, absolutely not. Forget about it. However you want to translate that, the answer is no to that. I am an Israelite myself. I'm a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. That was, he was proud of that. That's who I am. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? Look, I'm going to go back into the Old Testament now. and Remember that story, Elijah? How he appeared to God against Israel. Lord, They've killed your prophets. They've torn down your altars. I'm the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. What was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed a knee to Baal. So, too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, and hear this, this is for us, if it's by grace, it cannot be based on works. If it were, Grace would no longer be grace. Verse 7, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. And then he's going to go back into the Old Testament scriptures and he's going to combine a few here. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see, ears that could not hear, to this very day. And David says, and he's going to quote Psalm, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. In verses 1 to 10, we're going to see God's saving grace. In verse 1, Paul says, I know God didn't reject Israel. And he he says, look at me. I came to know Jesus on the road to Damascus. I was fully Jew, trust me. I was trying to persecute the church, but yet Jesus appeared to me on the road to Damascus. I accepted the Lord as my Savior. I am now a follower of Jesus Christ. I am both Jew, fully, and fully Christian. So God has not rejected his people, and I am a prime example of that, Paul says. He says, in Romans 10, we read last week, everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. doesn't matter. So we know it's not true that God has not rejected his people, but then he goes, look at the story of Elijah. Now, going back into 1 Kings 18 and 19, there's the story of how Elijah appears before King Ahab. And he says, Ahab, I want you to know something. It's not going to rain for three and a half years until I say so. So basically, he, you know, stands before the great King Ahab who had rejected God and established Baal as the God 
Baal, by the way, is the god of storms, the god of rain. Isn't that interesting? It's not going to rain for three and a half years. Guess what? It's kind of an in-your-face here a little bit. And then we have the great story of Mount Carmel, 450 prophets of Baal, you know, and where Elijah calls down fire from heaven on his sacrifice. You remember that story, how they drenched his altar with water so it filled the moats around and fire came down, and then Elijah had the 450 prophets of 850 prophets of Baal killed, so that Israel would follow God. So it's a great story. It's this great victory. But chapter 19, he gets this note. Ahab goes home and he tells Jezebel, his queen, about what had happened. And Jezebel writes out this little threatening note, saying, "By this time tomorrow, basically, Elijah, you're going to be dead." So what does Elijah do? It's interesting here. He doesn't say, oh, hey, I just saw what God did up on the Mount Carmel. I'm going to trust God. Who's, who's Jezebel? No. He runs away in fear. And he goes 40 days further into the wilderness, and he's there underneath a tree. And, he's, and it's interesting how God led him back to Mount Horeb, the place where God had given the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel. 40 days' journey away from where he was, to that area around Mount Horeb where God had given the law. And then God speaks to him and he says this. There's 7,000 just like you who trust me who are not following Baal. There's this remnant. That's that word. There's a remnant that's still around. How many of you, like Elijah, have felt in your life, I'm the only one? Have you ever been there? Maybe at work, maybe at school, Maybe just in our culture, more and more, it feels like that we're kind of the only ones. Have you ever been in that situation? And where you've just said, God, I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I can continue on because it just feels like I'm left alone here. And what God wants you to know is, look, I have had and I always will have my people, my remnant that follow me, that are faithful to me, even in the worst of times, there's this remnant, this idea. And look what verse 5 says here in this chapter. It says, so too at the present time, now in Paul's time, there's this remnant chosen by grace. God always has this remnant. Sixty-five plus times in the Old Testament, God reminded his people that there's a remnant when they were in Egypt and when God saved them out of Egypt, God kept reminding them there's this remnant. I'm pulling you out. When they were taken into captivity by the Assyrians, the northern kingdom, God said there's going to be a remnant that I'm going to keep my eye on and save. And then when the southern kingdom was taken captive by the Babylonians, God reminded him there's this remnant of people that are going to be saved. There's always this remnant chosen by grace. And verse 6 reminds us it's by grace. It's not by works. It's never been by works. God's people are people of faith. They're not people that follow me based upon their works and trying to earn my favor. They trust me first and foremost. Then works come out of that faith. Verses 7 to 10, it talks about two different kinds of people, two different kinds of Israelites in their day. What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain. The elect among them did. There's the elect that follow God, that trust him, but the others were hardened. 
The others rejected God, and just like we learned in chapter nine of Romans, it's like with Pharaoh. The first five of those plagues, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then the next five, it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. It's like when you turn your back on God, Romans 1 would say the same thing. God gave them over. It's this idea that the more you reject God, the more you turn your back on him, the easier it is to just become hardened to God. And we see that playing out here. So there's the elect, those that are following God, those that are hardened by God. And then I like what Paul does here in verses 8 through 10. He says, if you don't believe me, here's the scripture. And he highlights and he picks out passages from each of the three main parts of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Old Testament. There's the law, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the law. Then there's the books of the prophets and what the prophets foretold. He's gonna, and then there's the writings, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, books of wisdom and writing. And Paul in verses eight through 10 is gonna quote from Deuteronomy, the law, the Pentateuch, then a part of it from Isaiah 29.10, there in verse eight, and then in verses nine and 10, the book of Psalms. It says all throughout the Hebrew Old Testament, the scriptures, God has said this. And so what you read there in verses eight to 10 are those passages from the Old Testament. God gave them over to the spirit of stupor. They had eyes they couldn't see, they had ears they couldn't hear. It's like there was something going on in their minds that God kind of put a veil over their eyes. Second Corinthians, Paul picks up on this, and there was the story in the Old Testament about how Moses would meet with God and he would come out from the meeting with God and his face would shine. And so he would put a veil over his face to kind of tone it down a little bit. It was, it was bright. And Paul kind of takes that image and look what he says in 2 Corinthians 3, 14 to 16. He says, their minds were made dull for to this day the same veil. He's referring to that veil that Moses had over his face. That same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. You can't, without Christ, that veil remains. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. He's speaking to the Jewish people. Whenever anyone turns to the Lord, there's good news here. The veil is taken away. So in a sense, Paul says, look, there's still kind of this veil, just what the Old Testament spoke of with the Jewish people. There's a, they just don't get it. And you can talk with Bill Rogers and Vered who work over in Israel, who are missionaries over there. He would heartily agree with this. You can show them clearly from the Old Testament scriptures about who Jesus is and all the prophecies that talk about him, and they don't see it. They're just, it's like this veil is over their minds and their hearts. Paul's point is that the gospel's always open to anyone who believes. He did, but he also understands that the Israelite people currently, at this point, there's kind of this veil, there's this, they just don't get it. They're trying to earn God's favor, they're trying to earn their own righteousness rather than accept God's righteousness, which is through Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says that it's by grace, right? It's by grace you've been saved. This, not from yourselves, it's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. That's the story of God's grace. Verses 11 to 24, the grafting of God. 
Look what it says here. Again, I ask, and he's going to go to question number two. Question number one, did God reject his people? Absolutely not. There's still a remnant. The rejection, they rejected God. God has not rejected them. It's an incomplete rejection for sure. There's still people coming to faith, Paul says, in Christ. So the second question, did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Is their rejection final? Is it total? Is it over for the people of Israel? Same response. Are you kidding me? No, of course not. The rejection is only, it's a temporary thing. Did they stumble as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their trans- transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will, be their, full, will their full inclusion bring? If they rejected God and there are still all these blessings that went out to the Gentiles, Imagine what it's going to be like when the Jews come back to God as a nation. How much greater it's going to be then. I am talking to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am the apostle to you, the Gentiles. God has given me that ministry. I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For If their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Again, he's pointing ahead. There's going to be a time where the people of Israel are going to come back to God as a whole. That's going to be amazing. And then he's going to give us a couple metaphors, a couple object lessons. If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. Verse 17, if some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive root, warning, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root. The root supports you. You will say to them, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Yes, Granted, Paul says, that's true. But they were broken off because of unbelief. You stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider, therefore, the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. Speaking of the Jews. After all, if you were cut off, were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature, and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? Why? Did Israel stumble? Paul addresses in the first four verses, 11 to 15, he talks about that. Number one, so that the Gentiles could be grafted in, so that the Gentiles, the door would be open to the Gentile people. John 1, 11 and 12, Jesus said, he came to that which was his own, the Jews. He was a Jew, he was born of a Jew. He came to that which was his own, but guess what? We know the story. His own... 
They did not receive him. Yet, to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There was a rejection of his own, the people of Israel, but it opened the door and it opened a way for all to come to know Jesus. We should be grateful for this. This is a beautiful thing. As a Gentile, I'm grateful for the fact that God opened the door to us so that all who believe in him could become children of God. Why? What other purpose was going on? Why did the Israelites reject? Paul says it's, it's like God is using us, the Gentiles, to make them jealous, to make them envious. It's an interesting thing that Paul's doing here. So God started out with the Jewish people. They rejected him. They've been cut off. We've been grafted in. And he says part of that purpose is that so when the Jews look at you Gentiles and see the gospel, see the gospel being lived out and all the blessings that are in that in Christ, they're going to get a little jealous. And the word make envious there is it's a little more than just I feel a little jealous or envious of that. It's it's a motivation to change. It's a motivation to receive the gospel. A great example of this is like a child with a toy. Think about this, and you've seen this with your kids. They'll be playing with a toy, and then they'll, just, they'll put the toy down. They'll walk away. They become disinterested. They're done with the toy, right? Well, what happens when one of their sibling comes up and starts playing with that toy? All of a sudden, for some reason, that toy is the most important thing in the world. And so then you've got this battle ensuing over the toy, right? It's mine, no, it's mine, it's mine. Just as a second ago, they had walked away from the toy. They were not interested. They left it there. They could care less. Well, the minute they see their sibling playing with the toy and enjoying the toy, they're jealous. They want it. And that's kind of the example Paul's saying here. He says, my prayer, even though I'm ministering to the Gentiles and God has given me that ministry, he says, there's something at play here. I want my brethren, the Israelites, to see what's going on, what God's doing in your lives, and I want them to be envious. I want them to want what you have, the gospel. I want them to want Jesus Christ, to know that it's righteousness of God is through him only, not through works. And then verses 12 through 15 just talk about what if. There's this illustration of if things are good now, with Israel being cut off, how much greater will it be when Israel responds and as a people, they turn back to God? He gives in verse 12, there's gonna be greater riches. Greater riches than what God gave the Israelites originally when they responded to the gospel. In verse 15, he talks about life from the dead. This passing from death to life. So it's gonna be so much better. And then the two metaphors in verses 16 and 17. The first one has to do, he's going to take us into the kitchen and talk about dough and bread and the loaf. And then he's going to take us into his backyard and talk about this olive tree and branches and roots and what's, what's all going on there, the two metaphors. With the dough, it's this image of as the first part of the dough in the Old Testament, the book of Numbers, it talks about how the people would uh, bake a loaf, and they would take the first part of that loaf and they would present it to the priests called the first fruits. It was a way of saying to God, thank you. Responding him, knowing that all that I have, my food comes from you, and so I'm gonna give the first fruit. I'm gonna give of that back to you, knowing that from you it came. And they would present it to the priests 
setting it apart as holy. And what Paul's saying is that if the first part of that loaf is offered to the priest and is holy, then the rest of that loaf, what's remaining, is holy. And then he's going to talk about the root and the branches. What is going on there? The olive tree illustration. If you have that picture, Emily, if you shoot that, oh, it's up there. (laughs) There it is. This is actually a picture of an olive tree that's been grafted from the area around Nazareth, Israel. And I was reading about this. I am not a gardener. In fact, usually when I touch things, they die. Um, And so I I don't know anything about grafting. I haven't worked on an orchard before or a farm. I've seen it done. I kind of understand the principle. But here's a picture of an old olive tree. You can see it has the roots down the ground and, and just part of the stump of an old kind of a, probably a dead olive tree, but what's been grafted in is this new tree, and it's flourishing. So Chuck Swindoll speaks of this a little bit. He says, ancient growers discovered that the roots and stock of wild olive olive trees could tolerate harsh conditions, such as wind, drought, while cultivated trees were not as successful. So they combined the best elements of both. The hearty root system of the old wild tree and the delicious fruit of the cultivated tree. So you have the stability of the roots that could handle the storm and you have the cultivated tree that could produce the wonderful fruit. Paul's illustration, however, gave the image a surprising twist. He turns it around in his illustration. In his example, the wild olive branches, which are the Gentiles, draw nourishment from the sap and roots of a cultivated stock. It's already planted, it's healthy. This is a dramatic picture of grace. Wild olive branches can produce only small, hard nubs of fruit containing very little oil. In other words, the wild branches on their own are useless. Nevertheless, in a bizarre turn of horticultural good sense, some cultivated branches were pruned away because they did not bear fruit to make room for wild branches which cannot bear fruit or anything useful. The wild branches now receive the life-giving nourishment from the cultivated stock. However, the graft does not change the nature of the branch. It is actually possible to graft a branch, I did not know this, but actually possible to graft a branch from a pear tree into the stock of an apple tree. However, this doesn't change the nature of the pear branch. It doesn't begin producing apples just because it receives nourishment from the stock of an apple tree. In keeping with its nature, it produces pears. Hmm. Similarly, wild olive branches cannot produce better fruit simply because they've been grafted into a cultivated tree. In fact, the wild branches receive nourishing sap but have no ability to contribute anything in return. How foolish it would be for them to feel superior to anyone He's speaking of the Gentiles here. Because the branches, especially the branches that were removed. So this illustration that Paul is using here, this idea of you have this olive tree that has its roots in the ground. It's it's in the promise made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And this is on the basis of faith. That's the root. And then you have this tree that grows from that the tree being the people of God. And originally, the people of God consisted of Israelites, maybe a few others. 
People that came into God's family that were part of the family of God had to go through the people of Israel in the Old Testament, right? And what Paul's saying now, for a time, some of the branches, the Israelites, broken off, the rejection. And you Gentiles, the wild olive branches, have been grafted in. So you are enjoying the benefits of this healthy root system. You've been grafted into the family of God by faith, um, along, with, along with some of the Israelites that continue to follow God by faith. There's this image that Paul has, and he kind of turns it upside down because normally the old dead would be, you'd graft in the new, and he kind of turns it upside down and says, it's the tree and the roots and the, all that's healthy, it's the branches that God is grafting in the old, the Gentiles. So there's this truth that by God's grace, we've been grafted in. We call that the church age that we're in currently where God has brought Gentiles into his plan and the book of Ephesians speaks about this in great detail. In Matthew 21, there's the issue and we talked about this in Sunday school class when Jesus is coming into Jerusalem on the donkey. There was three events associated with his triumphal entry. One is the entry on the donkey. The second one is the cleansing of the temple where Jesus goes into the temple and just overturns tables and chases them out. And then there's the cursing of the fig tree, a strange story about how Jesus is returning from Bethany back to Jerusalem, and he goes to pick a fig off this tree, and there's no figs, and so he curses the tree and it immediately dies. And his disciples are like, what is going on here? And we learned that it's a symbolic what Jesus was saying is that trees are meant to produce fruit. For his Israelites, he says in Matthew 21, he says, the kingdom of God is taken away from Israel and given to people who will produce fruit. It was very symbolic of what Jesus was doing in cursing the fig tree, saying my people, the people of Israel at this point are not producing fruit in line with who I've called them to be. And so... I'm giving it over to another people who will produce that fruit. So this image, we're being grafted in, but there's a warning, a reminder in verse 18 that Paul wants us as Gentiles to hear. This is good news, praise God. His plan, his foresight, his great gift, by grace we've been grafted in. But, verse 18, do not consider yourself to be superior. You're not better. You're not better than the Israelites. Number one, in 18, the second part of that verse, he says it's because you're, you're supported by that root and by the tree that you're grafted into. You're relying on the promises that God had originally made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob about how he would bless this earth. You've bought, you are enjoying the benefits of God's covenant with Abraham. Okay, So don't get proud and say we're better than the Jews because we're not. He says, there's a second reason, he says, beware also because the same God who grafted them is the same God who can break you off. God's sovereign in his plans. God can do what God wants to do, and God grafted you in by his grace. Beware if pride creeps in because understand it's only by faith that you've been grafted in in the first place. Ephesians 2, 1 and 5, I wanted to read this passage because I, in this I see the deadness of the, the branch that's been grafted in. On its own, that branch had nothing. 
until it was grafted in by faith into the tree. So here's Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. As for you, you were dead. Now he's talking to the church at Ephesus, the Gentiles there. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thought. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. That's who we were. But, verse 4, because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive. He grafted us in. He gave us an opportunity to live by his grace through faith. He made us alive with Christ even when we are dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. It's a wonderful reminder. And then look what Paul says in verse 22. He says, I want you to consider the kindness and the sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you'll also be cut off. I want you to consider God. I want you to consider his kindness. I want you to consider his sternness together, these two aspects. Romans 2, verses four to five. A while back we read these, he says, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that is intended to lead you to repentance? I want you to consider his kindness and repent. Come to him in faith, but keep in mind, stern. Because of your stubbornness, your unrepentant heart, you're storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. In Romans, we've been learning about the revelation of God's righteousness. It's through faith in Jesus Christ, but there's also the revelation of God's wrath. It's very real. Don't play it down. Understand it. Embrace God's kindness that leads you to repentance, but understand if you turn your back, there is a sternness, there is wrath there. This is the story that's important to understand, the two-part playing together. There's good news, though, in verse 23 and 24, this idea that someday there's this promise looking forward to when Israel's gonna be grafted back in. Look what it says in verse 23 and 24. If they do not persist in unbelief, they, the Israelites, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. Started out, they were cut off. God is able to graft them back into the original tree. After all, if you were cut off of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, that's our story, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? God is sovereign in this. God is able to take Israel back, to graft them back into the original olive tree that they were part of to start with. So there's the guarantee of God, verses 25 to 32. Let's read that. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Brothers and sisters, that you may not be conceited, Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion, 
He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for your sake. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who were at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. A couple things. Number one, there's a mystery here, Paul says, that I want you to know. Mystery does not mean something we don't know. When we use the word mystery, we think of things that have happened and we don't have a clue why. For example, Amelia Earhart, where is she? It's a mystery. Uh, D.B. Cooper, for us here in the Northwest, we understand that great story about how he jumped out of an airplane with a lot of money, right? What happened to D.B. Cooper? Did he live? Did he die? It's a mystery and will probably remain a mystery. We'll probably never figure it out. That's our mystery. Paul's mystery, here, by the way, here's a greater mystery for me. When they package hot dogs, <laughs> why do they have eight hot dogs in a package and six buns? What's up with that? I don't know. That's, again, it's a mystery, right? Never be solved, never be known. Again, my, maundering, my wandering mind wants to know these things. Paul says, I want, this is something that I want to reveal to you. It used to be unknown, but now I'm going to let you in on something here. I want you to understand that mystery is that there's this hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in. In other words, Israel has been cut off. Yes, they've rejected God, but it's in part. It's not a for everything. Why? So that the fullness of the Gentiles can take place. God is at work amongst his people. The word is going out to the people all over the world of all nations, tribes, tongues, and peoples. That's God's purpose. When that is completed, there's going to be a return of Israel as a nation now back to God in his timing. Paul says, I want you to know this. This is a mystery that I'm revealing to you, letting you in on one of God's secrets that now is being revealed. And then verse 26, all Israel will be saved. What does that mean? Every, does it mean every single Israelite will come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior? No. Not everyone will come to know Jesus Christ as their personal savior. We know that from scripture. What it's speaking of is as a people, the people of Israel will be drawn back to God in God's time and the mystery of God's plan for the future. Not all Israelites are Israelites. We learned that in Romans 9. Only those who put their faith and trust in Christ. Those are true Israelites. Not everyone born of Israel is an Israelite, Paul says, but only those who are born of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So when it speaks of all Israelites being saved, it's like the fullness of the Gentiles. Not all Gentiles are gonna be saved, but there's a point where the gospel will continue to go out and people will continue to come to know Christ in different places all over this planet. Then Israelite will experience that, where they will come to know him. Probably in large numbers, but not all, 100%. What are his purposes? By the way, there's a beautiful parable called the Great Banquet in Luke 14 where 
this man wants to have this celebratory banquet, so he sends his servant out to invite people to come. And one by one, as he goes out and invites people, they come up with really lame excuses. You know, I sold my horse, and I got married, and I can't come to your banquet. And so the servant returns back to this guy. and says, I went out, I invited them. Nobody can come. And so the man who wants to have this banquet says, well, okay, I'll tell you what. Forget about them for now. I want you to go out into the byways, the back roads, outcasts, the, the people that are lame and blind. I want you to invite them to come. It's a story about how Israel had been invited. The prophets had gone out to them. They had rejected the prophets and how the gospel now had been opened up. And it says something very interesting in that parable. It says the gentleman who was giving this banquet it's a picture of God and how God wants his house full. That's the purpose of God. God wants his house full, so his invitation is going out broader than just the Jews here. It's going out to the whole world. Um, and it's a beautiful story of what Jesus is saying about how, yeah, the Jews have refused to come in, but God is opening up his plan to the Gentile people. Verse 28 and on, it says, as far as the gospel is concerned, they're enemies for your sake. Paul says, guess what? The current time, the Israelites are our enemy when it, in regards to the gospel. Paul had sure experienced that with the Israelite people. But as far as election is concerned, they're loved on account of the patriarchs. God says, my plan for them, my goal for them has not died. I still have them in my mind, in my heart, in my plans. They're loved on account of the patriarchs for God's gifts, his call are irrevocable. God's not going back on his promises made to Israel. He's going to follow through. He's going to come through on them. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God, look what Paul does in these next verses regarding disobedience and mercy. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now becoming disobedient in order that they too now may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. It's this play between their disobeying, so you've received mercy, and then God's through working through you is going to bring mercy to them eventually. It's going to be a full cycle thing. In response to disobedience, God is showing mercy. In response to failure and being broken off and them rejecting the Messiah, mercy is there. Four times the word mercy is used. The word mercy there is hesed, which is a beautiful Old Testament word of God's loving kindness, his desire, unsacrificial love for his people and his covenant promises. That's hesed. That's that beautiful word, and that's mercy. God is, extends it out. He desires to show mercy. God's future blessing for God's people, Israel and us. God keeps his promises. I wanted to go back into the Old Testament to see that God's promises have always been this way. Isaiah, if you want to shoot Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 up there. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. Notice how all, 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 he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. This is back in Old Testament prophecies in the book of Isaiah. It's on this mountain, all people. Not just Jewish people, all. 
Now let's move forward to Revelation. At the end, Revelation 21, verses 10 to 14. He carried me away in the spirit to a mountain. There's that mountain again. Great and high, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates. Listen to what it says here. With 12 angels at the gates, on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Hmm. This is Revelation, okay, the end times. 12 tribes of Israel, guess what? They're a part of God's plan. Always have been. They're going to be back. It continues on, though. There were, 12, there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations. On them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The Old Testament promises with the 12 tribes of Israel and all that God laid out there beautifully in the roots, Abrahamic covenant, combined with the New Testament, the apostles of the Lamb, the church people that come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the wall, we have the foundation together. This is the city of God, these are the people of God, this is the plan of God, encompassing Israel, encompassing us as his church, together as the people of God. That's the plan of God in all of this, Paul says. So yes, the Israelites have turned their back on God right now. It looks bleak right now. They're not responding to the gospel right now. In fact, they're enemies of the gospel, but there's going to come a day where God turns them back and where they respond to him as a nation. Then he goes into this amazing doxology, and if you could stand with me as I read these. This is the end of this doctrinal section of Romans. The first 11 chapters we've been going through, what is this righteousness of God? What is the gospel? What does God plan to do with us, with his people? Israel, it's been pretty deep. Um... We're going to be entering into the practice. Uh, When we get to chapter 12, it's going to be okay. Now that you know who you are in Christ, here's what you need to be doing for him, the practice. But it's based upon the doctrine, what you know to be true of him. So he's going to end this great section with this great doxology of God. And let me just, just read it to you. We're going to see God's greatness, we're going to see God's grace, and we're going to see God's glory. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, his paths are beyond tracing out. I can't figure God out all the time. Is that true? His ways are so much higher than ours. His thoughts greater than ours. It's Isaiah. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He's quoting again from Old Testament scriptures here. Guess what? We can't always figure God out. That's okay. Because look what it says in the next verse. Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? This is God's grace. We owe everything to God. He owes us nothing. He's given us everything by his grace. And then his glory. From him, he's the creator. Through him, he's the sustainer. To him and for him, he is the end of all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Good news is Romans doesn't end here, but that's a beautiful place to end today. Just remember God's greatness, how great he is, how his his ways are so much greater than ours. Remember his grace. 
It's not by anything we do. He doesn't owe us anything. We owe him everything. And remember his glory. Everything about our lives is for him and for his glory. Remember those things today. Amen.